Because I get this question every single time one of these movies pops into the rotation, allow me to make this very clear. You guys, that is to say my patrons, people who support the show, they're the ones who decide what I do for the show. Just like a patron would. You know, a patron reaches out and says, hey, make me this painting, and I say, okay. And that's what I do. So that's why we've covered three, five, and now six of the Harry Potter films. <sighs> this is an interesting one. First of all, it's probably the worst of the three I've covered so far, in my opinion. <laughs> well, we skipped over four, so I, I'm not sure how that would rate. But I'll, And I'll talk about why in a minute. But this was also, they were sitting down and writing this film after the seventh book had come out. Now, that was significant, because when they were working on the previous films, the series wasn't done yet. But because they actually knew where the story was going, they were allowed to do little things here or there in order to change the story in small ways to add foreshadowing, where otherwise they wouldn't be able to. This is probably most obvious with the big thing right at the end, but there's bits and pieces of it here and there. It's also worth noting, this is officially the film where they said, screw it, to making these films as close to the books as possible. Four had already broken away from the book. Five broke away from the book even more. Six now officially said, you know what, these are adaptations, obviously, but we're going to just go ahead and treat this as a separate continuity kind of a thing. And thus, from officially from six onwards, the books and the films would be forever divested of each other. They're no longer direct adaptations. They are a, a retelling, effectively, which changes a few things. And I found myself, while I was making these notes, pointing out several things and then realizing those things weren't actually in the films. <laughs> it's hard to do, right? You know what I mean? <clears throat> but... Yeah, they also like to do a whole lot of different stuff with the lighting and with the usage of color, which I think shows, and honestly, this is probably the most visually impressive of the Harry Potters so far. They really know how to be very particular types of atmospheric, and it has this wonderful aura of gloom about it, in a way that I don't even know how to properly describe. Voldemort is now openly back. People are dealing with him, and there's fear, and there's terror, and there's just all there's the knowledge that the Death Eaters are out there causing issues, and, and everything's just got this fog hanging over it, which is wonderful, except when it's not there. I'll cover that in a minute. So, the movie starts off just... In, <laughs> I, the first thing we see... It's not really a full scene, but the very first thing we see is a bunch of people taking pictures of a very stunned Harry. Which makes sense. Not only has he just barely survived Voldemort and Miss Bellatrix, but also he just watched his only real family die right in front of him. Yeah. This is, remember, minutes at most from when he watched Sirius die. And he's still recovering from that. Nice little touch. Dumbledore putting the arm around his shoulder and just leading him away from the interviewees and photo-takers who probably had no idea the kind of trauma he's just been through. Whereas Dumbledore, a kind soul, wants to get him away from that. Unfortunately, Dumbledore is cursed with something much worse than kindness. Uh, intellect. And intellect and kindness do not go together all that well. Anyways... This then leads to the Death Eaters, who are straight-up terrorists. Kidnapping and destroying and just... Domestic terror. What they are doing is straight-up terrorism, in what I would consider the classic sense of the word. And what they are attempting to do 
<laughs> yeah. Well, they're actually, it's actually funny, they're in a weakened position right now. They don't really have the resources and manpower necessary to really stand up against the Wizarding World. So naturally they would turn to terrorism. That's just kind of the natural operation there. Although you'd think they could go more guerrilla warfare style, but no, they're evil, so they want to hurt people. You know, you, you gotta get you gotta get your your giggles in somehow, right? Uh, we find out in a paper, Malfoy Lucius is now in Azkaban, probably enjoying his stay, and of course the son and wife are properly humiliated. Keep that in mind for later. This is then when we learn about Slughorn. I don't think the film ever actually said this, but Slughorn's a Slytherin. Now, I only point that out because he's probably one of the better examples of someone who is Slytherin and not, you know, a bad guy. I'm sure many, many people who are far more versed in Harry Potter than I have have pointed out many times about the in-universe and out-of-universe bias against the Slytherin house, so this is just another example of that kind of a thing. But Slughorn, he's... he's an interesting take on ambition, isn't he? He has connections. He doesn't actually have position. He's not very wealthy. He's not very powerful. He doesn't have some great standing. He's not the minister or whatever. But in, what he is, is someone who knows a lot of people. And there's a value to that. A value to favors, and a value to how that can be used to his advantage. I will uh, actually, we already talked about this back during the film we covered two weeks ago. I'm rearranging my schedule as we speak in order to make my statement true about the nature of favors and how incredibly useful and powerful favors can be in the right hands. And I do think Slughorn's the kind of guy who would know said value and be more than capable of using it. So, there's this really, really good shot. Uh, the camera's just pointing straight up. And Ginny's at the bottom, looking up, being like, hey, when did Harry get here? And they're like, Harry's not here. And uh, first Molly's face comes out, then Ron's face comes out, then Hermione's face comes out. And it's all one shot, and they're all just at different levels of it, looking out over this mess of staircases that's going up. It's a good shot. It's a good shot. And I always like to praise you know, clever little... Clever little camera usages like that. Anyways, film geek, what do you want from me? <clears throat> Unfortunately, we only see Timothy Spall very briefly. Uh, we have talked about him, looks like several weeks ago at this point, uh, with The Last Samurai. But it is good to see him, even if only for like five seconds. This, of course, leads to the crux of the next two books slash films. It applies both equally. The, unspe the Unbreakable Vow. I have seen so many discussion threads over the years. What would have happened if Snape had refused to do the Unbreakable Vow? What other methods might he have used to talk his way around that situation? He could have just bowed out. He could have just refused to do it. Said, no. No, I'm cool. I will help your son, but I'm not making an Unbreakable Vow. You're, on, you're, you're nuts. Go away. And he could have just refused, but he decided to do so. Now... Let's go ahead and be honest with ourselves. We know the real reason that happened. Because at this point, the writer was still trying to make us jump and guess at what was going on with Severus Snape. That's the truth of it. She was still trying to ensure that we didn't really know where the story was going with regards to him. Funny little factoid, by the way, I discovered quite recently, because there were some letters that were released just a few years ago, 
uh, after Alan Rickman passed on. They had that detail, the fact that he was in, well, a lot of the production of this film, actually. But one of the things that came out was he was in contact with J.K. Rowling very early on in the film's series, and he was told a fairly large amount of truth about his character that most other people weren't, up to and including directors. So he would occasionally have to say no to certain bits of direction because he knew better, and he had to just stay quiet about that. That just, that just sounds like an interesting way to do things. Uh, but either way, moving on. <clears throat> so what do you think would have happened if he had not made the unbreakable vow? I'm not even going to give my speculation. That is a big change. That's a sea change right there. Well, it is, in the books, it is very, very likely that Dumbledore would have died anyways. That thread is actually gone from the movies. So with the fact that Dumbledore is no longer doomed, in the sense I like to use that word as, as in actually, you know, not in some kind of joking way, but no, no, he was doomed. But since he was not doomed in the films, well, he could have just kept going, couldn't he? That could have changed things drastically. That's so much of a change that that's basically just rewriting book six and book seven at that point. Or, excuse me, film six and film seven. Either way, curious of your thoughts as always. If I don't see at least one or two essays in my comments section... So, we see Weasley's shop. Okay, that's cool. Uh, it's nice. Uh, it's a good scene. little silly, little laugh. Happy place. Amidst a huge dead alley where almost everyone has shut down. This is both metaphors brilliantly in one shot. Because on the one hand, it's fake. Things are going badly and awful and terrible. And they're trying to pretend that things are not that bad. But on the other hand... They're also trying to just add a little bit of light to an otherwise dull and colorless landscape, metaphorically speaking. In short, things are bad, which is exactly why they are trying so hard to make sure that people have get, you know, pranksters and gadgets and all sorts of fun things to you know, make their lives not terrible. Also, the books do this more, of course, but even in the films it becomes clear that this is kind of where they decided to go with their livelihood. They are smart enough and skilled enough in order to be able to make this sort of thing happen, and so they do. And they're apparently very good businessmen. Go figure. <laughs> Emma Watson almost didn't come back to this film. Ah, she was in school at the time. I don't know British schools, so I don't know which grade she was in which year, so forgive me. But she was. She ultimately decided that even though she considered just making them recast her, she couldn't bear the thought of anyone else doing the part. How apropos. But I have to admit, that is the great danger of doing something like this. And I wanted to say this here, because while I was reading that, I noticed a lot of other trends. I've obviously studied the making of and the, the construction of both Harry Potter 3, 5, and now 6, the films, specifically. Now, I've, been re I've told you the whole story of how I got into the books and how I got into the films, but I wanted to tell you here how amazing it is we got the films at all. In today's society where, I mean, I guess that's, that's not really what, in real life, because it doesn't really matter for time, doing a long-standing franchise, this is eight films we're talking here, and making it work? That's a hat trick. I can think of one other franchise which has managed this incredible feat. Just the one. Honestly, if it wasn't Harry Potter and didn't have the financial juggernaut backing that it did, it probably wouldn't have managed it. Because there are so many ways everything could go wrong. 
different directors, different writing staff, different creative differences. Things could have not sold well. One particularly bad-selling movie, and all of a sudden the franchise would just have to stop with Harry Potter 5, right? Or whatever number you want to pick. Uh, earlier this year, I covered Solo, a Star Wars story, which was supposed to effectively be one part one of three, not not part of a direct anal- uh, chronology or whatever, but they were, had two other films they were already working on planning on. The guy who played Han Solo signed a contract for two more films in addition to that. So, you know, we're talking effectively five additional films. Well, that film did badly, so the plug got pulled. And that could have happened at any point in the Harry Potter series for these films. And the actors could have maybe not wanted to come back. Or maybe they just got replaced for other reasons, Dumbledore. Or maybe they had issues with they were too old to play the same roles. There are several roles in this very film that were supposed to be played by the original actors who played them. Young Tom Riddle being the most obvious one. But the problem was so much time had passed in real life that they couldn't anymore. Alan Rickman, by the way, was in his 60s when he was doing this. Or late 50s, I forget which, please forgive me. But he was around the 60 range. And he was supposed to be playing someone who was still the same age, you know, basically plus five from when they did Harry Potter 1, which was more than five years prior to the making of this film. You see the issues and the problems that arise here with real-life actors and ages and contracts and money and writers and directors and... I just wanted to take a moment and be astonished that we actually got all eight films and the film series did actually conclude. Oh yeah, by the way, as of filming this, the Grindelwald series, because that's what it is, has effectively terminated after the second film. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to individual opinion, but I'm only pointing it out because that's an example of what I'm talking about and what could have happened with the core eight. So... Harry makes things worse. That's a really common trend. It's more in the books, but I do like how Harry is um, bad at what he does. He's he's not a good hero. He's an amateur. He's kind of a moron. And I do actually like that. It helps bring him down from what would otherwise be Mary Sue status. My favorite example of this is pretty early on. He decides, on his own, with no backup, without informing anyone, to go do something because he thinks someone's up to something. Now, he's got good instincts, and he is right. Malfoy is up to something. The problem is, he decided to go on his own, without any backup, without any planning, without telling anyone. So naturally, he is damned lucky that Luna happened to come by and notice him. And by the way, Luna is still awesome. I just want to say that Miss Lovegood is amazing. So, <laughs> she also fixes his face, which is harder to do than it sounds. So we see the auras in the background. There's some buildup of a few things. Girls all crowd around the love potion, which is incredibly sexist. But also, you'll notice that he, as he's describing it, he, he does make it clear this is a poisonous thing. It creates a powerful infatuation up to the point of obsession with a target, which, as he very accurately points out, is not love. I was paying attention. Since they nixed most of the other Voldemort backstory things from the film, for various reasons, um, we don't actually know that Voldemort was a loveless baby, that he was conceived under such unique circumstances. And I just thought that was interesting, because I think I kind of prefer it that way in its own way. 
But at the same time, I do kind of like having the explanation. See, I'm of two minds on this one. On the one hand, having an explanation for why Voldemort is just such a damaged, horrific individual is, is nice. I like to know why. That's that's kind of a shtick, right? Even regardless of the show, I do like to know why. But the other reason, the reason I don't quite care for it, is because you're telling me no one else has done that throughout history. No one else has uh, raped, let's call it what it is, someone by using a love potion in order to conceive of a child, and the child was then born under this loveless circumstance. You're, you're not telling me that other children have not been born under otherwise loveless circumstances, regardless of the usage of the potion. <laughs> right? It kind of reminds me of the Horcrux thing. There's actually, I looked this up. There's two instances of known usages of Horcrux. Some guy in Greece centuries ago and Voldemort. But then I started really thinking about it. And I wanted to step that back and say that I'm okay with that. I'm not going to say why now, because screw you. But I want you to remember... No, okay, okay, I'll talk about it. I'll talk about it. I'm just messing. I like to... I have a note on... I think it's on my second page here somewhere uh, about Hex... Uh, about Horcruxes. It's when we finally find out about Horcruxes. did a little research on it while I was going. Uh, even in the film, you know, for to ignore the books for a second, even in the film, it is mentioned that the Horcrux is made by the most ultimate evil act you can do, the act of murder. I can think of so many things worse than murder here in real life. So many worse. But then I got to thinking, now hear me out for a second. In my setting that I write, there are certain concepts that I decided, you know what? No. So they don't exist. Obviously that, you know, some if I'm handing it out to any other writers who want to write a story for the extant, they can look at this and say, well, I can't write such and such. But the reason why they can't write such and such is because the sun just came out. I hope that's not screwing with my green screen. I'm going to double check here. Alex like we're still good. The reason is because the concept was erased. It's hard to do something when you can't conceptualize it, right? Like, it, let's, if I was to get rid of the concept of lying, then there's no, like, around getting around that. Because it would never occur to you to even try to lie, because the very idea of a lie is something that doesn't exist. It has been erased from reality, from the very fabric of existence. And so under those circumstances, you couldn't lie because you would never even know what a lie is to do it. Sounds like... Now, obviously, you could say, well, that's strange, and that feels like something external is maintaining that. And you'd be right. But this all brings me back to the point, if I can bring this back down to Harry Potter for a second, that I've noticed I'm not the only author that does things like that. You know, establishes rules for the setting. Such and such, such and such, such and such, nope. Right? Which brings me all the way back to Harry Potter. What if murder, and I do stress murder, which is a horrible thing, by the way. This isn't killing. This isn't accidental manslaughter. This isn't driving around and accidentally running into someone or shooting an enemy combatant in a war. Murder really is different and much worse. Uh, the way they describe it, it's effectively what we would call premeditated first-degree murder. You know, I'm going to kill that person and planning it out and getting ready for it and then actually taking the action, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe that really is as bad as it gets. And if that's true, then... Hell, I, I, maybe I wouldn't mind living in the Harry Potter setting. 
Certainly better than here. But this then ties back into the love potion thing, because it is entirely within reason that, well, very few, if no one else, actually did the whole love potion horribleness thing before. And, while we're on the subject, it is probably also worth noting that even if there are plenty of other loveless child, children that have been born which are as diseased and wrong in terms of their soul construction as Voldemort is, well, Voldemort was still unique in many other ways, wasn't he? He was uniquely positioned in terms of blood and in terms of how skilled he was and in how intelligent he was and how driven he was, and most importantly of all, of how afraid he was because it was his fear of dying that drove him more than anything else. Remember, this is the kid who committed his first murder at the age of 16, roughly, in order to ensure that he wouldn't die, because he was that driven to not die. That says a lot. Anyway, sorry for the big sidebar there. Ah, where's my freaking notes? Where am I? Where am I? Uh, the love potion, the obsession. Oh, right. Let's talk about, I call it the dating subplot, because that's me being kind. There's a... I actually talked to my mom about this while I was watching the film. She she texts me daily, and she's awesome, and I love her. Uh, and she was asking which film I was covering, and I told her this one, and she's like, oh, what do you think of it? And I gave her a, a template, but one of the things I said was, I really like it except for the teenage hormone subplot. And her response was, teenage hormones used to matter to you, too. And I was like, yeah, but they sure don't now. <laughs> I really feel like the teenage hormone subplot actively detracts from this film. My opinion. Now hear me out for a second before you all grab your torches and burn me alive. I get that they were trying to reach out for a teen demographic. I get that they were trying to shift where the film was aimed at. But if I might be so bold, this feels like a complete misstep this far into the franchise. I guess it kind of had to happen here because of the ages of the kids involved in-universe, in but also with regards to the actors. But at the same time, this really does feel like a complete misstep. I think it would have still worked if they just dialed it back tremendously. Get rid of a lot of the unnecessary filler. Keep the thing with Lavender going over the top. Keep the thing with Hermione. Keep the thing with Harry. Keep the thing with Ginny. And there we go. And you probably think, well, what else is there? I decided to take note. And rather than actually doing, because, you know, I, I do bullet point kind of a thing here in order to remind myself of things. Rather than jotting down each instance, uh, you may notice here in the corner, uh, if you can see that, I point, I just have a, a check mark thing where I'm like, okay, or not check mark, uh, keeping track. I was keeping count. I don't know what that's called. Four and then a slash. One, ten, fifteen. So, uh, 20 separate scenes in this film, 20 independent and separate scenes in this film have to do with the dating subplot, the teenage hormone subplot. I think that's too much. And I also think too many of it was very poorly done. Before you, you, you burn me again, because now you hate me, a couple of things. First of all, I do like how Harry just slams down any potential shipping between him and her. Which is funny, because I also think that both of them, the actors, have really good chemistry with each other. To the point where the two act off of each other really, really well. There's some really good scenes between the two. And I could see why people would look at that and think romance. Now, I don't. But part of that is because what I see is what they intended, a.k.a. 
two really good friends. Several times Ron is like, I'm his best friend, but it, no, Hermione. Hermione is Harry's best friend. I'm sorry. Especially at this point in history. And there's a lot of little things about the hormone subplot that I'm okay with. Um, the scene where she she realizes how much she hurt, she is hurt to watch someone she likes, Ron in this case, uh, snogging, to use their terminology, with someone else. And it just hurts. And she's just having difficulty coping with that. I've been there. I imagine a lot of you have been there, too. And the way she portrays that, and the way he goes, that is to say Harry, goes to comfort her, that was good. It's a good scene. There's also a couple other very small things. Um, there's a bit where Ginny comes in, and Hermione notices, ah, look at her eyes, she's been fighting again. Hermione's really perceptive the whole film, because she's awesome. Um, there's, a, there's other little tidbits like that that help to, to flesh it out and make it so it's not completely terrible. But either way, I just I had to get that out of the way because I, I this is what actively pushes this film below the previous two we've covered for this show for me. Anyways, now that we've carved out a huge chunk of the film and thrown it out the window, let's move on. So, <clears throat> uh, we find out that Snape is really, really good at potion making. Go figure that, you know, of course he would be. He's so good that he's actually better than the textbook. I'd make fun, but I live in the United States. I remember what my textbooks were like. Especially <laughs> uh, history ones. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm, I'm glad the library was free in public, because I used to go there and just read and read and read and read. That's not what it said in the textbook. I'm sure at least some of you have. No, nobody. Oh, God, I'm a geek. Um, <clears throat> we see young Riddle. We see the idea of reaching out to lost magic kids, which makes a lot of sense. Also, we see the seven stones. I never noticed that before. Uh, that's the indication of how many. The number seven being super important to him for some reason. I don't think it's actually elaborated on in the films at all. We see the picture of the cave. We find out he's parcel tongue. And there's this wonderful bit. There's this wonderful bit where Dumbledore says, did I know I was meeting the most dangerous wizard in history? I don't know if I would call Voldemort the most dangerous wizard in history. Unfortunately, because the films have kind of been torpedoed, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure what what I would eventually think of Grindelwald, but I've said it before and I've said it again, I actually prefer Grindelwald as a villain to Voldemort. There's more there. He's more of a, uh, he's more of a statesman, but he's also more of a conniver. Voldemort is a giant hammer that smashes things that are in its way. Now, don't, that's not really an insult. It's just his style of approach of villainy. He is really strong, and he smashes his way through any problem, brute-forcing it constantly, constantly underestimates everyone else around him, in a way I'll talk about later even. I'll talk about it now. In the cave, uh, in the books, obviously, this doesn't really apply in the movies, but in the cave, there's this bit where he took Creature there, who I don't think he's even in this film. Uh, I think he shows up briefly in the fifth film, and then he will show up again in the seventh film. But anyways, he took Creature there, and so here, drink the poison, po potion, just to make sure that the, you know, the draught of uh, despair was actually working. Make sure all the traps are working. Then he left him. Then Creature teleported out because he's a house elf and they can do that. House elves can even teleport into Hogwarts, which is otherwise defended against such things. But of course, Voldemort wouldn't think of that because he's a giant hammer. Smashy, smashy. You see what I mean? It's not, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that's usually portrayed. But the fact is, he tends to brute force almost all of his solutions. 
Anyways. <clears throat> Moving on. I'm curious what you think, though. Who's, who's a better villain, Grindelwald or Voldemort? Keeping in mind we have, you know, seven films, excuse me, eight films and seven books. For Voldemort, we have two films for Grindelwald, and that's kind of it. But I am, as usual, getting off topic. So we see a bit with the Room of Requirement and Malfoy. They do a nice build-up throughout the film about that. It's good stuff. And then we see a bit of whimsy. We see a whimsy scene with them making the potion, and then we see a whimsy scene during the tryouts. Got to have those whimsy scenes. Um, we see that there's the book. Uh, Slughorn, right. I, I don't know if I talked about this. He's... I talked about the connections. In real-life history, a lot of people would become very, very affluent simply by virtue of being at the right parties or going to the right poker games or, or whatever, right? Going to the right card houses. Because that's where the rich and the powerful went, and so that's where you can be charming, where you could talk with them and where you can get ideas out and where you can become connected. There are hints in this film that Slughorn is actually not doing all that well financially. This would help to explain why he is basically robbing the school, let's call it what it is, in order to take the, the resources of the school in order to sell them on the black market. It is also possible he is simply trying to maintain a high standard of living by robbing the school. That is also within the realm of possibility. I'm not sure which, take of it either way. But I pointed out because Slughorn is not someone who is powerful. Not really. But he is someone who is very well connected. And this party is a great example of how. As, he, as they're sitting around, he's just, oh, yes, and this person, and your father, and this uncle, and this person. And he's just got all these names memorized of all the connecting threads between people. And considering the extremely obvious parallels between blue-blooding and magic-blooding, so... Uh, <laughs> we see attempt number one with the cursed necklace and this also leads to another dating scene it's one of the only dating scenes I'm going to comment on there's this bit uh, there's this bit where they talk about skin right? Hermione's got nice skin which <laughs> this is the dumb kind of thing you come up with when you fancy someone right or maybe it isn't you ever heard of skin hunger look it up it's not as bad as it sounds I swear I, uh, it's, it's not the best phrase, but skin hunger is a real thing and is something that's actually fascinating with regards to human physiology and psychology. And I'll go ahead and admit, I'm actually a hugger in real life, although I save my hugs for specific people. If, if I see my niece, a hug's happening, I'm just saying. <laughs> There's a hug in the immediate future if I get to see my niece. But no, it, it's partially because of this very concept, because people respond very well to touch. And I know what you're thinking, ugh, don't. Don't do that. It can be sexual, it can be sensual, but skin hunger is just about connection. Just like I mentioned earlier with Hermione and with Harry. They're not trying to get inside each other's pants. They're just close. This, I'm sorry, this actually irritates me, which is why I'm starting to sound a little bit angry here. Because too, too many times I hear people just automatically presume a romantic angle my sister and I, for the longest time, couldn't go out and about without people automatically assuming we were married. It used to piss me off. Nowadays, it's just mildly amusing. Because, I mean, the reason why is because, well, there's a guy and there's a girl and they're very close to each other, so obviously they have to be romantically connected. I mean, duh. 
Right? What other possible... Oh, it's your sister. It could have also been my friend. When I was growing up, I actually had more female friends than male in just about every school I was in. Hell, if you've ever uh, heard me talk about any of the Genesis games I used to play, that was at a friend's house. And her dad used to suspect that she and I were up to something. We weren't. We were playing Genesis games in her room. So you can see why this kind of is, is, a, is a thing that irritates me and has over the years. But all of this is a roundabout way of saying that it under, it's understandable why they would notice the skin thing. You'll also notice, nice little touch, that there is a lot of close physical contact between several of the, the, the principal three characters. All of them. You know, Ron to Harry, Harry to Hermione, Hermione to Ron. And I think I missed some one in there. But you get the point. All of them tend to get very close. There's this one bit as they're walking away before they discover the cursed necklace where Hermione literally puts her arms around both of them and hugs them both close. To give an example of that. Or how about the scene when he's got the chocolates, the, the cursed chocolates that have the love potion in them. Let's just call it what it is, the love poison in it. MLP fans will get that. And the love poison thing, and he's just, he's, <laughs> as he's going through that, and he gets right up there, like shoulder up, just, just squats right on the bed with Harry. Like, hey, what's going on? Lots of that happens. And it does help to indicate and show visually how close the three are. And that's all I wanted to comment on. <clears throat> so Hermione notices Ginny's eyes. I already mentioned that. Uh, layers of bad. I'm actually going to save that conversation for later. Luna is, of course, observant, as she should be. Love the Lionheart, by the way. Can I get one of those? I wouldn't wear it. I'd just put it on my shelf, but it's so cool. What happens next is a classic trope. If you've seen half of the, the various uh, sports movies or dramas out there, you've probably seen the, here, let me give you this secret thing that'll totally help you. Oh, no, the secret thing. I lost it. It's okay. The Schwartz was within you. The whole It's a really cl common and, and classic cliche. It's not necessarily bad, though, as all cliches are. I like this iteration of it, and if I can explain why, it's because he really does just need the confidence. Ron is an athletic person, and he is someone who is good at being a seeker. He is someone who has practiced at being a seeker for several years. He is someone who is sufficiently driven and interested enough in being a seeker to continue to really devote himself to the craft. What I'm trying to say is that this is an intended career path for him, something he's really into, and something he's put a lot of effort into being good at. He's a good seeker. All he is missing is that confidence. I imagine a lot of you know that that feels like, too. Just like I do. Except I'm actually bad at everything. But I do know what it feels like to have the total lack of confidence. Don't read too much into that. The point being, in this case, I'm okay with it, because he really just needs that boost. And he is perfectly good with it. This then leads to the scene I mentioned earlier. Hermione being hurt. Do you remember your first? Your first crush? The first uh, person you were interested in? You know, I'm trying to think of a term for that. I guess crush really is the best word, isn't it? But I wanted something like a step up from crush, you know. First person you really fancied. Do you remember that? I do. Um... God, I must have been 11 at the time, something like that. It's 
when you have no experience, it's a little different, isn't it? When you're just raw, raw emotions, raw impact, no idea how to deal with it, no idea how to cope, no emotional maturity, nothing, just, huh? oh, and everything just feels just a little bit sharper, right? So I can kind of sympathize with Hermione here. Kind of, because I don't see what she sees in Ron, unless she just likes athletic guys. I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so he invites Luna. There's several panning shots, which are actually really well done, which start on something lighthearted and silly, usually one of the dating subplots, which I just kind of keep bouncing over, and then drifting over, and there's Malfoy. There's them, and then there's Malfoy. Hey, they're walking by. There's Malfoy. They, they do this several times. Um, there's this nice Christmas scene. <laughs> actually, before I talk about the scene, uh, the scene's actual significance, there's this bit where Arthur is left there, and his daughter sits down right next to right next to Harry. And I mean, again, physical closeness. Now, this one's clearly romantic in intent. This then leads to Arthur, <sighs> and he just gets up and leaves. <laughs> I really liked that. I actually like Molly and Arthur Weasley quite a bit in the books. I wish they had more of a presence in the films. They've always been, well, let's be honest, they've always been Harry's uh, actual family, haven't they? Actually being family in a way that he never really had with the Dursleys. Anywho, <clears throat> but before that, there's this bit where Remus is talking to him, and he's talking about Snape, and Harry's reporting on what Snape said. And the two biggest themes of this film come in. Trust and hatred. And they are shown kind of in contrast to each other. You know, opposition to each other, if you might put it that way. Because, well, trust is difficult, right? I've actually talked about this concept before. I want you to think in your head of someone, don't, don't say it out loud, but I want you to think of someone in your head that you really trust, okay? So let's say you entrust them with something. Now, do you trust everyone that they trust? How about everyone they trust? How about everyone they trust? And you see where this is going. It's basically a form of the telephone game. Each step, you're getting a little bit more removed from the source, and you're more likely to find someone that you, the originator, do not actually trust. And thus we have a problem. So you could see why Remus's statement of, I, Dumbledore trusts Snape, and I trust Dumbledore, therefore I trust Snape, is actually flawed. However, this is the fun part, in circumstance like this, you have to. This is pure pragmatism. And I love that Remus is the one who gives the pragmatic thing here. That he's the one who talks about how you have to deal with this. Because we're at war with a terroristic force that is trying to torture, maim, and kill and establish a new dark order to basically wreck the world. This is an extreme. The rules go out the window when things get to extremes. So he's actually right here. Twice he is right. Because first of all, he is right to believe in the circle of trust. Because if you don't, then you don't trust anyone. No, really, that's, that's as far as that goes. If, if you trust the one person, that's not a circle of trust. That's not enough to form any kind of reasonable organization or resistance or anything that you need to make it operate as a group. All you have is one person who's got your back, and that is not enough when it comes to something of this scale. Not if you're trying to form an organized resistance, which Remus is part of. Next point. 
he says, Harry, you are poisoned by hatred. I forget how he phrases it, but that's what he says. He's right. Harry despises Snape so much that he is utterly and completely unwilling to give him so much as a hint of a chance of actually proving himself. And the same thing for Malfoy. What makes this situation even more amusing is that I can't blame him for either point. Snape has been universally disdainful, to the point of actually abusive to Harry. And, um, Malfoy? We talked about him back in movie three, you remember that? We actually brought up a brief discussion, and I got some really cool comments on it about from, from you guys about him, and just how bad he was. It's interesting that this film goes so far out of its way to humanize, humanize Malfoy, but again, I'll talk about degrees of bad later. Either way, this then leads to Harry being an idiot, screwing up again and charging out to the Death Eaters, which again proves his point. He is, in fact, actually poisoned by rage. Pure theory crafting, thanks to Harry's, let's call it connection to Voldemort. Do you think that that's why he is so poisoned by hatred? Or do you think it's just something that he gets because he had a pretty rough childhood and still has emotional issues which he has only be barely begun to sort out? I'm leaning towards the latter myself. Seriously, this kid ne needed a good, loving family. He eventually got one, but, you know, there's, there's the before times, the long, long ago. So, <clears throat> uh, Harry tries to interrogate Slughorn, fails at it miserably. Um, oh, there's this, actually a pretty good good, uh, Rupert, Rupert Grint, Is, am, am I saying that right? The guy who plays Ron plays Lovesick Enchanted, pretty well. Like, he does a good job of playing it. It's it's weird to comment on, but it's probably the best acting I've seen of him in this entire film. He just has got this thing where he's just a little bit out of it, but he's enough with it to, to keep this thing. He's basically playing someone who is under an enchantment in the classical sense of the word. And he does a great portrayal of it. So naturally, we take him to Slughorn. Harry had just failed at getting to Slughorn. Uh, Ron provides the, the segue into Slughorn, and Slughorn then unintentionally poisons Ron by giving him a bit of the brandy, or whatever drink it was, I forget actually, uh, that was supposed to be a gift for Dumbledore. Cute. Thankfully, Harry actually has been paying attention due to that stupid book that Snape that, that was Snape's. How did it end up there? Anyways, <laughs> and thus he actually does know what to do, while Slughorn is completely stunned at the thing. At the very idea of having accidentally poisoned the kid, he's mollified and horrified, but also kind of useless. This is when we show the bird between B&Bs uh, and the, the thing and, and the, the connection and fixing it and all that fun stuff. You also notice throughout the whole film, Malfoy has been looking worse and worse and worse. And worse. Just, you could tell it is really getting to him. He's obviously struggling to deal with this. Just like his father, actually. I already posited the idea that Lucius really is not that bad. Oh, he's, he's a bigot who is uh, elitist and a prick. But he's not that bad because there are degrees of bad. Yes, we're finally going to talk about it. Someone who pushes you down in the hallway is bad. 
someone who stabs you in the back is bad. Someone who mass murders 30 people is bad. Degrees of separation exist here between these. And this is extremely important when it comes to fiction because it kind of helps to put things into proper perspective. Voldemort is clearly shown as the bottom here, as bad as bad gets. He is someone who is totally cool with mass murdering and destroying and committing all sorts of atrocities just for frickin' cuz, because that's what he's pushing to do. Smashy smashy! But above him we have a few others. Bellatrix is an obvious one. But we have to go up several steps to get to someone like Malfoy. Draco Malfoy. Draco obviously doesn't want to do this. And this is one of the great crimes of something, an institution like Voldemort's. And we get in the best insight into how evil Voldemort is and how bad things were during the First Wizarding War. Both come from Draco Malfoy. Draco Malfoy. The way he portrays his character here is brilliant. The actor really sells someone who is just absolutely crushed under the weight of this. And he is sobbing and shaking. And then Harry comes into the bathroom and accuses him of cursing the lady. Now, this is Harry's flaw. Draco needs help. He does need a friend. He has rejected Snape because Snape is only doing so because he's part of the problem. From Draco's perspective, Snape is part of the problem. He's part of the, the, the retinue of Voldemort. That's not going to work. So he's got to, he's, he, he needs someone to reach out to him. Dumbledore almost manages it. Almost. Almost manages it at the end. And as Harry points out, Draco was lowering his wand. He's not a killer. Excuse me, he's not a murderer. And remember what I said earlier? Worst crime, etc.? That's, that's not Draco. Not even a little. For all of the uppity, snobby, horrible crap he's done, what he is now having is what I like to call a slap in the face. With an iron gauntlet. He is being showed just how bad things can actually get. And he is being forced to participate in that bad, which is arguably worse than having the bad done to yourself, although I'm certain some people will disagree on that point. Draco has a beautiful and perfect chance to turn things around and become one of the good guys, if only someone would reach out to him. And Harry accuses him and attacks him. Now again, I don't blame Harry for that. I'm only pointing out that Harry messes up most things that he does, because he's a kid. He's a kid who's been told he's the chosen one, and he's a, now he's a teenager who's been told he's the chosen one. And the only reason Harry ever succeeds in anything is because all the people around him and his connections to them. Now, that's fine. I like that. I think that's good storytelling. But this is such a tragedy, because this would have been the moment to really start turning that around, especially if that vow had not been made. <sighs> so, with that going to hell, Harry has a moment with Ginny. I remember my first kiss, too. It was terrible. <laughs> it's awful, awful. Uh, not a fun thing. Um, <laughs> this then leads to him getting the luck potion. He's so chipper when he's got it. He's just uh, so upbeat. Da, da, da. Oh, I'm going to go to Hagrid's. Bye. He walks by, just walks up. Like, even his, his, his visual, uh, the, the, his body language uh, of the actor is just, ah, Oh, yes, Professor, hi. Oh, my God. Yeah, I figured you were stealing these. No, no, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm going down to Hagrid's. 
what are you doing? Well, then you need to come with. It's just, he's so blase, chipper, upbeat. I don't even know what to call it. He hits this perfect blend when he's under the luck potion. It's awesome. As a further aside, I have to admit, the idea of luck as a manipulatable resource in fiction is actually the kind of thing I adore as an idea. I've come up with several artifact and magic items in D&D, for example, that alter luck, usually as kind of a, a give-and-take sort of a thing. But it, it's great because you as the GM or the writer or the, the producer or whatever, you know how things are, so you can arrange situations so that things seem lucky or unlucky, depending. Because... You actually know what's going on. You actually know that, Hag- that Aragog has died and Hagrid's over there and Slughorn's over here. If you go here, you'll bring up Aaron. That'll tell him the truth. It all lines up perfectly because, well, you're the GM. That's how that works. You're the one writing the story. Anyway, so it's, it's just cool. It's cool the way they do that. By the way, I am so glad Aragog's dead. Poof. Slughorn. I mentioned Malfoy earlier. Slughorn is not a good person, but he's not that bad either. Degrees. Slughorn is someone who has no problem robbing the school that he is working for in order to make some more money, for whatever reason. Slughorn is someone who has clearly studied the dark arts extensively to know about what a horcrux is off the top of his head. He is also someone who is very affluent and politically connected, and that's not something that happens if you don't dirty yourself. He is also manipulative and conniving and absolutely wants to further increase his own status, you know, his collection. But he is not that bad. When he is approached by the idea of a horcrux, he's kind of horrified. When he's approached by the idea of multiple horcruxes, he can barely deal with that thought, and he actually terminates the conversation at that point. When he is asked, this whole situation, you could tell how much this is really, really bothering him. And ultimately, Slughorn is basically just a normal person, isn't he? Kind of neutral evil, if you will. <laughs> I suppose I shouldn't say that. It's implying I'm calling most people evil. Now, I wouldn't even call him neutral evil. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'd probably call him chaotic neutral if I had to pick one for him. He's mostly out for himself. He doesn't really adhere to any particular rules, but he also has no problem abiding them. So I guess that's actually more true neutral, isn't it? God dang, Slughorn, you're hard to pin down. It's almost like an alignment chart doesn't really appeal to a character that's fully three-dimensional. But anyways, I like Slughorn is what I'm trying to get at. And I just want to give special praise to, dramatic pause to look up the name, Jim Broadbent, who was a perfect choice for Slughorn. He nails, I've I've seen him in a film, uh, we, we covered it last year, I don't remember the name of it, uh, he nails that aesthetic, actually I think it was two years ago, of someone who is seemingly pleasant and affable and more than willing to have other edges to them. He can do multi-layered and he can do it well. So, Aragog's dead. They found out everything's happened. You know, blah, 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 blah. Can we just take a moment to marvel at the defenses of this cave? Just finding the cave is problem number one. It's just a random cave against some rocks that happen to be somewhat near an orphanage. That's it. That's the full extent of its significance. Um, the cave itself requires blood to enter. Okay. Once you go in, there is a magical dimming that prevents most light sources from operating properly. Immediately after that, you see a giant lake, 
and a thing with a saucer. If you go into the lake, if you disturb the water in any way uh, of, of an entire small army of Inferni... Inferni? I don't think they say them out loud. They're not actually zombies, because zombies exist in the setting, but they're undead minions crafted from victims that he has murdered in order to try and use them in order as a defense mechanism or whatever. So let's just call them pseudo-zombies and move on. Anyways, <clears throat> the Inferni... Inferni? Hmm... I think Inferni sounds better. I'm probably wrong about that. But either way, the Inferni are there. So if you disturb the water, they... And you're dead. You can't apparate in or out. Unless you're a house elf. And the boat... I don't think the film mentions this. The boat is set up so that only one wizard of age can be in it at once. Which means a house elf could come along, or a non-wizard could come along, or an underage wizard could come along. Huh. Then, we're not even done. So the boat's enchanted, the boat gets out of coast, you have the thing, there's the potion. The potion gives you horrific visions, we'll come back to that in just a second, and also severely dehydrates you. Then, the, the, there's no real source of water present, so you can't actually get water. So your choice is, having gone through this horrible, terrifying thing of actually managing to drink this, this horrible, horrible death potion, is you can either die of thirst, right there, and join the Inferni. Or you can try to drink from the water, which I wouldn't, by the way. That has got to be tainted to hell and back. And that disturbs them, and they come up and get you. And how the heck are you supposed to even get out of there? This is very well defended. But you'll notice how, and I kind of pointed out a few of these as we went, there are still very obvious holes. Because that's his style. Brute force. If I just put a chain and a lock and a chain and a lock and a chain and a lock, you'll never get through it. Not even considering that someone could just slide through the chains and just get right through and bypass the whole thing, right? It's a terrible analogy, but I hope you understand my meaning. So, while he's drinking the potion, he says, Kill me. Emphasis on me. He also says, It's my fault. What do you want to bet he was talking about his sister? Remember horrific visions? Yeah. Trust. Talked about trust before. Harry trusts Dumbledore. So Harry stays below and decides to go quiet. Snape comes in, reveals himself to Harry. He's got his wand out, but as soon as Harry notices him, he's like, okay, we're cool. And then Snape goes up. Trust! Harry now decides to trust Snape. Snape then kills Dumbledore. Severus, please. This is obviously done more for out-of-character reasons than in-character reasons, and I'm not going to spoil Jack here. But I bring all this up because that theme of trust then dovetails perfectly into the theme of being poisoned by hatred. Because Harry now cannot see past the fact that he trusted and his trust was, was betrayed. His trust led to the death of his one of his remaining family members. He doesn't have a lot left at this point. He's losing. They're just dropping off like flies, you know. Uh, I'm trying to joke to make it less horrible. It's well done. It's a good scene. Dumbledore's death is very well done, and <laughs> we get the idea that we get the inference of just how much this bothers him and how much it affects him, and. As Bellatrix, specifically, is making a mess of things as she leaves, that is very clearly aimed at the audience. 
Because if you're watching this film, not the film I'm making, if you're watching the, the, the film that I'm talking about, you're probably at least a little bit invested in the franchise. And so you've been watching those halls and that glass and the candles and the, the all of that for however many years since the first film came out, right? And she's just spitting on it, trashing it, just for fun. Yeah, nah, 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 nah. She also burns Hagrid's house. Same thing. So Harry confronts Snape. We get the big reveal. He was the Half-Blood Prince. It's lore shock. Would I... I only have two other things to say towards the end here. R.A.B. God, the theories and rumor mills were going nuts after the sixth book came out before the seventh book came out. I know I said I wouldn't talk about the books, but this is especially relevant because I was actually part of that scene at that point in time, and man, the theories were flying. I will freely admit, I one of my guesses, for I had many, was actually correct. Woo. I can't claim a big one. It wasn't even my big guess. It wasn't my, my favorite pick. It was just one of the things I had mentioned as a possibility. But the other thing I wanted to mention, after they go... As they're leaving, they kill Dumbledore. Well, Snape kills Dumbledore. And then, uh, I think it's Bellatrix. One of them sends up Mors Mordre. The Dark Mark. Or the Death Mark, whatever it's actually called, right? It shows up above Hog uh, Hogsworth. And they freak out. The auras are useless, of course. Government officials, am I right? But when they leave, uh, McGonagall is the first one to raise her wand. And everyone else just kind of raises it bit by bit. And it's a powerful and interesting image that... All of them combined are able to banish the Dark Mark. It's actually really obvious, but at the same time beautifully subtle. Because of what that means. Really, really means. Not just the fact that, you know, a group of people can take on one guy, no matter the power disparity within reasonability. But because what they're literally doing is banishing the fear. Voldemort's greatest weapon has always been fear. It's what he did the first time around. It's what he does this time around. Don't say his name. You remember that? Don't say his name. Even in the first book, it's one of the first things we introduced. Don't make me say his name because people hate to even say it for fear. Because that was his weapon. Terrorist. This, of course, is then followed through because Harry says, you know, I'm out. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I gotta go and hunt this down. I gotta finish this off. And we now have the promise for the seventh book, slash film, slash other film. And as Hermione says, Harry, you're an idiot. We're going with you. Because only a group can really stand against that kind of thing. Chosen one, my arse. I mean, if you pay attention to the numbers, Harry only destroys, what, one Horcrux? It was interesting going through this one. I admit I liked it a lot less than I thought I would. But it's almost entirely because of the odd teenage thing in the middle. And also the pacing was a little bit off. Which is interesting because a lot of elements of the books were specifically withdrawn from the film in order to assist the pacing. But where it's good, it's great. I love what they do with Malfoy. I love what they do with Snape. I love the elements of Dumbledore and how he's presented here. I really like a lot of the character elements. And, um, yeah. I don't know if we'll be covering any of the future ones, because as ever, I don't decide that. You guys do. 
But I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts on four, five, or excuse me, three, four, and three, five, and six. I can't even get the numbers right because it's such a weird con. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on three, five, and six, and I will see you guys next time. Thank <laughs> you.